It's so easy, isn't it, when we're listening to someone speak or when we move into a more relational field to lose that sense of embodied presence, that sense of embodied connection. And uh, so really inviting you as, you as you're listening to, to this talk just to stay connected, to keep practicing this first foundation of mindfulness that's such a theme in, in what we do together here. We can see, can't we, that our, our mental health and happiness depends so much on, on what we do with our attention. You know, and that, that as we're practicing here, just choosing carefully what we give attention to and how we pay attention. That this is really key to our well-being. Don't we know that when we're in difficult mind states or in a state of distress, our attention goes into the difficulty often uh, and what we give attention to grows stronger. Whatever we give attention to grows stronger. And that part of the opportunity of a retreat like this is to practice this deliberate, intentional shifting of attention out of the realm of thinking, out of the the loops of thinking, into the experience of sensing, sensing the body. grounding our attention within the body and and knowing all of our experience, coming to know all our experience through that medium. And this this is powerful training. Some of you will be aware of the the brain research that shows that these these different modes of, of thinking and sensing that use different parts of our brain. And even the experience of doing an eight-week course, mindfulness course, such as those that many of you teach, is enough really to reshape the way our brains operate and to separate these modes of thinking and sensing that are usually, before we start practicing mindfulness, a bit jumbled together. So even as you're sitting here and... It's when you remember dropping your attention into the sense of the body. It's, it's a powerful training we're doing. And this, this giving of attention to thinking or to sensing, this, this is the portal to to different what the psychologists call modes of mind. I'd like to speak a little bit about this this evening. 
Partly because it's becoming more and more prominent in the way in which science and psychologists are understanding mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn, in his, in his early work, Full Catastrophe Living, spoke about doing and being modes. And that, that uh, a lot of our stress can be understood as, as, as the overactivation of a doing mode. And that what we're practicing when we're practicing mindfulness is a mode of being. A different mode of mind. And what's been so interesting in some of the work in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy uh, for depression has been to see how when people move into and out of depressive relapse, a whole configuration of factors shift at the same time. So the mood lowers and different thinking patterns emerge and the body sensations change and people's behaviour changes and at a more subtle level the memory works differently. There's a memory bias and perception changes. As Christina was saying this afternoon, even just the way we see things and, and perceive things changes uh, and, and different aspects of the brain there's a, there's a modal shift that takes place in the brain and it's really this has really led to uh, a deepening sense that this is a useful way of understanding depression as, as a modal shift a shift into a different mode mode of mind mode of, mode of body and that what we're doing when we're training in mindfulness is practicing a different mode, practicing shifting out of a difficult mode into a mode that is more conducive to our well-being. And, and as I say, these, these two modes have, have come to be called doing mode or driven mode and being mode or mindful mode. And they're, they're, I think they're a really useful shorthand, really useful um, way of describing to ourselves and also to those we work with as therapists and mindfulness teachers something of what mindfulness training involves. And this doing mode, this driven mode, is oriented to our attention is going to our thought agenda, isn't it? Our sense of what we've got to do. Yeah? And, and so the attention is with thinking, and it's also in the past or the future, isn't it? Because most of our thinking is about the past or the future. So it's with past and future, and it's also automatic, so when we're in doing mode, that, that driven quality that we know, there's, there's a sense of we're on autopilot to some extent, aren't we? We're really running through our habits, trying to get things done. 
And there's often a quality also of avoidance, of aversion, of trying to push things away and grab onto other things. And, and the last feature of, of doing mode that's often identified is, is that we tend to believe our thoughts when we're in doing mode. We tend to believe that our thoughts are facts, facts about ourselves, facts about other people, facts about the world. And we live in a culture that praises doing mode, doesn't it? That rewards doing mode. Mark Williams's latest book is called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Finding Peace in a Frantic World. And we probably all know that, that feeling of being in, caught in the compulsions of doing. And it's contrasted with this being mode, this mindful mode, where our attention is more in, in sensing, sensing the body, sitting here breathing. And is therefore more in the present. And is more intentional. We've spoken about that a bit today. And is more welcoming and befriending of our experience. And where there's more possibility of seeing our thoughts as what you could call mental events rather than as facts. We're no longer in the midst of the thoughts, viewing the world through them. We're able to see them as events that come and go. Ah, my thought about that, my worry about that, coming and going. And so, more and more, the literature on mindfulness is referring to these these modes of mind, these modes of mind and body, And seeing how they're a useful way of connecting our day-to-day experience with some of the difficulties we get into, like stress and depression. Seeing how what stress and depression are about in many ways is, is a, a, a particular sort of activation of the doing mode, the driven mode. And I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. And so on retreat, we, we have this, this precious opportunity to practice shifting modes. To notice when our mind is feeling driven or when it's in a pattern of very compulsive thinking and to practice patiently again and again dropping the attention into the body deliberately intentionally placing our attention on something that's more steadying more calming more restful and learning to hold our experience in a wider awareness. So it's not that we have to get rid of the doing mode, it's about how do I hold this? 
Can I, can I hold the mind's activity in a wider embodied awareness? And we can see how this doing is so connected with what Jenny talked about this afternoon. Vedana, feeling tone. The fact that every experience we've ever had, every experience we've ever had, has come either as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we can see, can't we, how it's our reactivity to the pleasant and to the unpleasant that launches us into our doing. So maybe, maybe it's a particular thought that has a strong feeling tone of, yeah, I really want that. And so we launch into the doing mode of planning. And just, just to be clear that these, these are modes of mind that, that even if we're sitting here on, uh, still in a, re- a meditation hall, our mind can still be in doing mode, can't it? Busily planning or worrying or regretting. Compulsively playing through its to-do list of one sort or another. And we can see how it's our reactivity to the pleasant and the unpleasant that launches us into these cycles. And of course, at one level, these have had a survival value for us, haven't they, as as humans have evolved? Because, Because the pleasant, there is a movement towards it because there's a sense of it offering perhaps safety or nourishment, if you think, if we think in the way in which organisms work and move towards what, nourishes or seems secure move towards the pleasant Vedani we can see that it's, this, is, this, this movement towards the pleasant a movement away from the unpleasant as a potential threat or danger is hardwired into us isn't it it's a very very basic reaction that has enabled us enabled beings to survive and of course for humans, it's even more complicated, or it's more complicated, because we don't, we don't only have the capacity to react to the pleasant or the unpleasant in this moment. We have the capacity to imagine, to anticipate, to replay. And we can see what huge evolutionary advantage that gave us as human beings to be able to imagine what might happen if and to plan for ways of looking after ourselves. But we can also see it's an evolutionary advantage with a great cost, isn't it? Because we can, in the cinema of our minds, be busily imagining threats and dangers and pleasures and having the same reactions of of craving, reaching towards the pleasant, pushing away from the unpleasant. And it's a whole level of mental activity and doing that can keep us very busy and preoccupied.
Mark Williams likes to contrast us with the gazelles on the savannah. And the way in which, you know, they can seem pretty peaceful and they're eating. And then, and then the lion appears, or as he says, then David Attenborough appears with a film crew and they know there's a lion on its way. And, and immediately there's activity and there's frantic panic uh, and there's racing and chasing to get away from. And the lion catches one of the gazelles. And what do the others do? Almost immediately, they're back, grazing again. They're out of their doing mode. They're, they're in a restful state. They, they, don't, they don't develop, it seems, lion complexes or even David Attenborough complexes. And, and yet what, what we seem to do, of course, is constantly to be anticipating, pre-living and reliving our lives with the fear of what, what might happen, the anticipated sense of threat. And so we're in this sort of problem-solving mode so much of the time, aren't we? You know, we can spend so much time anticipating, and you probably have spent some time today, anticipating problems. And the mind gets very caught up in doing mode, thinking, how am I going to deal with it? What will happen if? And of course, we don't know what's going to happen. But yet, so much of our mental life, the reason for, for our compulsive thinking is because it seems as if the thinking is going to help us to feel more safe, more secure, more happy. Seems as if safety lies in thinking. Is this clear? Am I making sense here about you know the difference between, if you like, the the immediate sense of the pleasant and the unpleasant in our sensory world around us and what happens in our minds where we can spend a whole sitting absorbed in a pleasant thought, planning, how am I going to have more of that? Or we can spend a whole morning lost in grappling with an unpleasant thought or fantasy or memory. And we can see really how, although the problem-solving mode of mind, which is what the doing mode is, is really useful for practical tasks. I mean, we've, we've got here because of it, you know. And it's really uh, the seeds of so much creativity lie within it. And yet, when we apply that same mode of mind to our emotional lives or the desire to be happy, we can end up just going round and round and round in loops because these are not problems to be solved in this sort of way. And the psychologists have identified that the mechanism of doing mode, the way in which doing mode works is by something called, and excuse the technical phrase, discrepancy-based processing. Just to make that really, I hope, really simple. 
It's pointing to the way in which our minds create a sense of our current state and imagine another state which we either desire or we fear. In relation to pleasant Vedana, we create a desirable state, don't we, of how can I get more of this or how can I ensure this continues? You know, I, this is, I'm enjoying this piece of chocolate. Mm, is there some more? You know, or this meditation feels peaceful. Mm, I'm hoping the rest of the retreat will be like this. Or in relation to an unpleasant state, the mind throws up this sense of, in relation to an unpleasant experience, the mind throws up this imagination of, oh, what would it be like if this continued, if my knee is like this for the rest of the retreat? And we, our attention becomes preoccupied by that gap. That gap between how we think things are and how we want them to be. Or how we fear they might turn out. Does that make sense? Can you feel how that's the motor for the, the, the engine of the doing mode? You know, you go into a room and it's untidy and you have a sense of how you'd like it to be and so you get active, right? You see that there's a a meal to cook. You have a sense of how it might be and so you get active. This, This sense of the discrepancy between how things are and how we like them to be or how we think they should be propels us into activity propels our minds into activity. And we can see, can't we, how integral this is in the experience of stress, where we have this fear, what will happen if? What if I can't? And our minds have this sort of mirage of how things might end up. And we get frantic. We get, the mind gets very busy and stressed. Or in the case of depression, there's the sense, because so often, isn't it, our experience of depression follows an experience of loss. And there's the sense of the mind really comparing how I think things should be with how, how it feels like they are. So there's a sense of where did I go wrong? Why am I feeling so low? And in both of these cases, the problem-solving mode of mind kicks in and ruminates, as they say. It gets, gets into repeat-loop patterns of thought thinking through again and again, trying to work it out. And this is endless. This is endless. What what the mindfulness-based applications uh, and what our mindfulness training invites us to recognize is that this doing mode of mind is not a help when it comes to our emotional life and our inner life. 
and invites in the core skill of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is described as being to recognize what mode our mind is in. Am I in a doing mode? Am I in a being mode? And especially if we're in an unhelpful doing or driven mode, to learn to disengage from that by dropping our attention into the body and by learning to shift gear into a mode that is, is more mindful, more present. So just to, to summarize, just of this first part of what I want to say this evening, and um, I apologize if it feels a bit uh, psychological, um, but it's, it can be so helpful just to sense in one's own experience this modal quality, this quality of doing mode, this, this driven quality. that is so integral to our difficulties. And also to to sense our potential for a shift of gear, a shift of mode into something that is more mindful, more present. And this understanding... um, maps very clearly onto the Buddha's teachings, really because in many ways it arises from those teachings. It's in many ways the Buddha himself thought modally, thought in modal terms about suffering and the ending of suffering. And as uh, most of you will probably know, that right at the, the, the core of the Buddha's teachings are these four noble truths, which synthesize all of his teachings and which are guides for our investigation, for our experiential investigation. And they are the Buddha's understanding of dukkha, which is a Pali word, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha. Again, familiar to many of you, which, which as is often translated as suffering, but is of, as is often said, is that's not a, a, an adequate translation for this word that covers everything from our most intense anguish right through just to the most subtle sense of existential dis-ease. The whole range is covered by this word, dukkha. And, and sometimes people find it helpful to translate it unsatisfactoriness in that way. And, and I think... Christina said on this first night that the Buddha said, I teach dukkha and the ending of dukkha. That's what my teachings are about. 
the nature of dukkha, understanding so dukkha so fully that I see the way to end it, to bring it to an end. And I'd like just to say a little bit about these Four Noble Truths because they relate so, so closely and so helpfully to this understanding of modes of mind. The first of these Noble Truths is that there is simply the recognition that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness. And that can sound like a uh, a statement of about reality, a philosophical statement, but it's also a, uh, an invitation in our meditation to recognize when there's a quality of dis-ease or unsatisfactoriness present. And the Buddha said, this is to be understood. This is to be understood. Our Instinctive, as we've seen, our instinctive reaction to the unpleasant tends to be to turn away from it. Evolution has trained us to do that, to turn away from it. And the Buddha is saying, no, we need to learn to turn towards the difficulties of our lives. <coughs> need to turn towards, with investigation, with curiosity, with kindness, be willing to feel the difficult. And yeah, the, 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 I'm just wondering how much to say about this because of timing. Um, yeah, the, the, Buddha, the Buddha pointed us to three areas of our experience where this dukkha tends to arise, this sense of unsatisfactoriness tends to arise. The first is just the fact of unpleasant Vedana. It's just the fact that we have experiences that are difficult, that we have experiences that are painful. And the second is the fact of change, uh, and that, that pleasant experiences don't last, that, that we have, maybe have a sense of, of calm in a meditation and then the next sitting our mind is all over the place. And the third is, is really is, is a deepening of that, which is the recognition that everything is dependent on conditions, everything is in a state of flux. And this can, this, these can uh, sound a little uh, abstruse, but I think what I just want to, to invite you to, to, to contemplate is, is what Christina was pointing to uh, this morning, this sense that, that none of this in itself is a problem. Our difficulty comes from our reaction to the unpleasant. Our difficulty comes from our reaction to things changing. And as the Buddha said, this needs to be understood. And the second noble truth points to the fact that all these different experiences of difficulty have a single origin. 
the origin of all suffering, all, all difficulty, is in tanha, or craving, sometimes translated as thirst or hunger. Again, and this invites, invites our, to us to explore this in our own experience and to notice how in our experience that there is this, this sense of longing or this sense of craving or this sense of wanting things to be different from how they are. And, and how that is what generates this feeling of, of dis-ease or dissatisfaction. And we can see that, that again, just, to, just to, to integrate this with some of the, what, we, what I was talking about earlier, that, that it seems that what happens in relation to pleasant experiences and to unpleasant experiences is that the mind throws up a sense of how things could be different. The mind creates a sense of it could be more like this or I don't want it to be like that. And that that's the gap that fills with craving. That's the gap that fills with this hunger, this unquenchable hunger. And the Buddha said that this craving is to be abandoned. To be abandoned through seeing clearly. So when we look, we can see how this, this craving that we can feel, we can feel in ourselves that is, the, is so integral to, to the sense of doing, the sense of wanting, sense of desire to get, to become that nothing can satisfy it. That, that, that we may spend the morning looking forward to lunch and actually, although the lunch may be very, have lots of pleasant Vedana, it doesn't actually end that sense of craving. And so, the the uh, as Christina was saying, that, that the Buddha said that this, this origin of suffering, this cause of suffering in Tanha, needs to be let go of, needs to be abandoned. And this happens, as we've been reflecting, not through an act of will, but through cultivating the conditions that enable us to see clearly both that craving is unquenchable, but also to, to, to see clearly the cost of being driven by our craving and by our aversion. To feel that cost in our bodies and in our minds. And the third noble truth is, in a sense, the good news. Because it points to the fact that this is possible. This ending of dukkha, this ending of suffering, is possible. 
it's possible in moments. And as we cultivate the clear seeing that leads to letting go over time, it's possible more and more fully. <coughs> There's a saying by a great Tibetan um, Thai teacher called Ajahn Chah, which I'm going to adapt slightly and, and, and express in a way that, um, well, let's just describe it. He says, if there's a little letting go, there's a little peace. If there's a lot of letting go, there's a lot of peace. If there's complete letting go, we gain or realize complete peace. Our struggles with the world will have come to an end. What we see is we let go and practice letting go of craving, creating the conditions that enable us to do that, is that it transforms our whole perception. There's a, there's a, 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 a modal shift in our whole sense of self, our whole sense of the world. And we discover the degree to which our view of things was held in place by, by wanting and not wanting, by craving and aversion. And this happens at more and more subtle levels. And the fourth noble truth describes the way in which we can create these conditions. It describes the eightfold path. The path of ethics, the path of mental training, the path of insight that more and more enables us to see clearly, that more and more creates the conditions for letting go. So this... um, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, I think, it provides us with a, a, a deeper understanding that, that, that the, for which the modes of mind language is perhaps a useful shorthand, useful for us, useful for those with whom we work. And, and as we sit and walk and practice here, I think the retreat, Environment provides such a precious opportunity to see in our own experience the arising of craving, the, the arising of this sense of compulsion, the sense of, of the way in which we're comparing our, my, our current state with some idea of how we think, sh- think things should be, and, and to sense the suffering in that, and to practice again and again relaxing the body, grounding ourselves, taking ourselves into calm, learning to hold our experience with a a bigger awareness. This is a practice of friendly knowing, a practice of releasing, a practice of cultivating. 
and and as therapists and and mindfulness teachers we can really see and and I know so many of you involved in that work and and there's a way in which we practice here not just for ourselves you know what what we practice here is we get to know these modes of our mind we do very much on behalf of those with whom we work we do very much on behalf of those to whom we're related on behalf of the world this this practice is an act of compassion not just for ourselves, but for all those with whom we have contact. As we practice, we can see that the, the difference to which these modes point, the, the modes of doing, the modes of being, is ultimately the difference between samsara and nibbana between the, the realm of compulsive suffering and the experience of freedom. And as we see the stress that's caused by grasping, clinging, craving, as we practice releasing that, As, as we see that, that relief and freedom come not from getting and becoming and having or getting rid of, but by more and more bringing ourselves into alignment with the way things are. As, as we open to the dance of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, we have the possibility of knowing that with a new grace and with a new freedom. I'd like to finish by, in fact, reading again the, the poem that Jenny read last night, which was, um, which in, in some ways so beautifully describes a modal shift. It's by Wendell Berry, who, as many of you will know, is a is a farmer and a poet and a a wise and humble man. And the poem's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light.
For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.